My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at uh, Aletheia Church. Uh, before we get going this morning, um, over uh, the last few weeks as we have been into the book of Acts, we've been handing out scripture journals. So if you're new with us and would like a free scripture journal, just raise your hand and that way you can take notes in the margin uh, where, uh, alongside of what I'm saying today. And also, if you would like a free copy of God's Word, we have copies of God's Word that we love to give out to people. So if you would like a scripture journal or if you would like a Bible, just raise your hand and these young men in the back will uh, come down and give you those. All right? So, as I said, we are in uh, the book of Acts and we're in the middle of a series called Go and Tell, where we have been encouraging you, each and every one of you, to find one person in your life that you know God has strategically placed there that he is wanting you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. So we've taken this theme of Go and Tell, this emphasis of Go and Tell, and we've been aligning it with the book of Acts. So if you haven't been with us so far in the book of Acts, or if this far into the semester you've crammed so many facts and knowledge from your studies into your head that the Bible stuff has gotten pushed out, let me give you a little bit of a recap and a reminder what all we've seen so far through the first four chapters in the book of Acts. Jesus dies, buried, and resurrected at the end of the Gospels. Acts opens up where Jesus has spent 40 days with the apostles, with the disciples, with those who are following him. And he tells them, I want you to go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. But don't go until you are imbued with power from on high. So they go to the upper room. They pray for 10 days. That end of that 10 days is the 50th day from Jesus' resurrection, which coincides with the Feast of Booze, which means all of these people are in town. And in that moment, with 120 in the upper room, the Holy Spirit falls on them, tongues of fire are upon their head, saying that you are now the temple of God that is to go out into the world. And they begin to speak in foreign languages, the languages of all the people around them. This causes a great commotion. Scholars tell us there were up to 200,000 people in the city that day. They are all coming, surrounding these people, wanting to go, wanting to know what's going on, why is all of this happening. They even accuse them of being drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. And Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So he goes in this great, amazing sermon, one of the best sermons ever preached in world history, and 3,000 people get converted on that day and become followers of Jesus. And so the march of Christianity around the world really begins on that day in a very powerful way. From these very specific stories, we then see this very broad view of what's taking place in Acts 2, 42-47, where it tells us that the early church first gathered in homes, they continued in the apostles' teaching, they prayed for one another, they shared their possessions with one another, and they regularly ate meals together with one another. Then the story zooms back in, and we see Peter and John going to the temple one day to pray. And as they're going to the temple to pray, they see a man who is lame and has been lame for a really long time. The man is asking for money. Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And in that moment, the, leg, the man's legs are made whole. The man stands up. The man walks. The man runs. The man leaps for joy, begins to praise God. The people who had seen him every day going into the temple, they begin to praise God. This great commotion happens in the city. And now the same people who have crucified Jesus are now coming to arrest Peter and John. They're coming to question them. They even tell them, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, look, we can't fear you. We only fear God. All we can do with our lives is testify about the resurrection of Jesus it is real. So you can threaten us all you want, but it will do you no good. The other believers begin to pray, and they pray that God would make them bold to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So from that story, we now turn to where we're going to take a broad view. The author of Acts, Luke, the medical doctor, the historian, who's traveling along this journey, 
he documents now in a broad view what is taking place in verses 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Over the course of our series in Acts, we have used the word empowered in each and every title. And so along that theme, I want you to see today that the title of the message and the emphasis of the message is that the church was empowered by great grace. I want you to know and understand that for our lives today, it is the exact same thing. We, as the people of God, are, be, are to be empowered by great grace. Look at the unity in verse 32. They were of one heart and one soul. Can you say that you are of one heart and one soul with the local body of Christ? One of the evidences of great grace, of you understanding the great grace that has been bestowed upon you, is that you would find yourself one heart and one soul. This is my shameless plug for you to get into a gospel community if you are not in one yet. Because if you are going to become one heart and one soul with the people of God in Aletheia Church, you must go beyond Sunday into the homes where we gather so that you can become fully known to the people of God. So that you can become one heart and one soul with the other people who call this local body home. They had everything in common, a common unity, what we might call a community. When it came to their possessions, they had all things in common. The new life that had taken hold of them had caused them to let go of their possessions. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking at this point. If I had only seen and experienced the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if I had only experienced and seen Jesus' ascension, if I had only seen the Holy Spirit fall in that way on the day of Pentecost, of course I would give up all my stuff to follow Jesus. If I had seen a man who was, who was lame that I had seen for decades laying it again, of course I would give up all my stuff and follow Jesus because that is incredible evidence of great grace that I can see with my own eyes. Oh, church, how prone we are to overlook the great grace that has been bestowed upon us. The great grace that empowered the early church in a real and tangible way empowers you and I today. All we have to do is take hold of it the way the early church did 2,000 years ago. If you would, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, or you can follow along on the screen. But I want to spend just a few moments expounding for us the great grace that has been given to us, the children of God. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, writing to a young church, writing to a newer church just like us, with many new converts, with many people who are young in the faith, Paul writes this to the church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this before. I don't know if you've ever actually pondered these words before, but these are very striking words. And this is a universally true statement of all believers before they were in Christ. Now, I know you may have been told you were cute and you were cuddly and you were special and you may be all of those things. But sometimes in this positive generation that doesn't like to say anything negative at all, we have a hard time stomaching these words from Paul that says our condition, our condition before God, before we became followers of Jesus, is that we We're children of wrath. We were the sons of disobedience. We were following the course of this world. We were following Satan. We were living according to the passions of our flesh. But if we'll be honest with ourselves for a moment, we do know and we can admit that all of our decisions before Christ were for who? Me. All of your decisions are for you. Every decision you made before Christ, if not for Christ, was for you. This is a hard pill that many people have a hard time swallowing. This is why we say the gospel is offensive. Because it says that we were by nature children of wrath. And it says to those who aren't yet followers of Jesus, you are children of wrath because you have chosen to go your own way. But in maybe what are the two greatest words, and in the greatest transition of all of Scripture, Paul says, But God. But God. In spite of all those things that were true about us, but God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as bad as the bad news just was, The great news is greater and beyond any scope of the bad news. But notice who does all the work. God does all the work. And notice what it is. Out of His mercy, out of His great love, when we were dead. And one of the hardest things to get into the minds of people is that when we are proclaiming the gospel to the world, we are not trying to make bad people good. We are trying to make dead people come alive. This is why so many people refuse the gospel and kick against the gospel and hate the gospel. It is because they are spiritually dead. I don't care how enlightened they tell you they are. The Bible says they are dead in their trespasses. They are dead in their sins. This is why it takes an absolute work of God to raise life. God brings the dead to life. And look at what He does. He makes us alive together solely by His great grace. But not only does he make us alive in this life, look at what he does. I mean, this, this is what's amazing. Like, if, if you've ever been taught or you think you might be able to lose your salvation, that is the most ludicrous idea, okay? Because just look at what it says in the next two verses. Because immediately when he saved you, he raised you up with him and he seated you in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, we have a term for this in scripture the already but the not yet. All right, this has already been done to you, but it's not yet fully realized in your life. 
But in God's economy, in God's world, this has already taken place. And His great love and His great mercy for all of us is that He would sit you there. But not only would He seat you there already so that you can't lose your salvation, but look at what He says. His end plan, the final goal, the consummation of all these things is so that in the coming ages, forever and ever and ever and ever, He might show you and I the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that is a great God. That is a good God. That is a merciful God who would take sinners like us, who have chosen nothing but our own way, that out of his, sheer, out of his own sheer mercy and grace would redeem us, save us, make us alive, seat us in the heavenly places so that he can bestore his grace and glory and riches upon us for all of eternity. And we will never get to the end of his riches and his grace and his mercy and his glory. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the kind of God I want to follow. That's the kind of God who it might be worth giving up your possessions and surrendering all for the very short time you are alive on this earth. Paul goes on to say in verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So just in case, just in case you thought for a minute, because you were told you were cute, because you were told you were cuddly, because you were told you were special, because you were told you were good for all if you, if you just think, even for a microsecond, think any of this is because of your goodness, Paul just wants to make sure it's really clear it has nothing to do with your goodness. It is only by God's grace and grace alone that you are saved. And it is a gift from Him. And like all gifts that are being, being ready to be given out at Christmas, you just receive the gift. And Paul says this gift is better than a pair of socks, no matter how cool and colorful they might be. For we, the body of Christ, the church, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen to the words of my mouth. We work from approval, not for approval. Many of you are spending your life working for approval. From a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, your children, your parents, your professors, your employees... And therefore, you do the same thing with God. With God, you do not work for approval. You work from approval. God has already approved of you. He has already called you His own. He has already made you His child. This label, this identity, the Holy Spirit is stuck inside of you. You cannot get rid of it. You are His. Do not work for approval from God. Work from approval because you have already been approved. But you are called to work. You are called to do good deeds. The recognition, receiving, and redemption of great grace should cause incredibly great movements and great expressions of great grace to flow from God through us, and into the lives of everyone around us. As we jump back into Acts chapter 4, what I want you to notice is that what Paul states as a theological treatise to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 Luke states as a practical working out among a community as a whole, and as you will see next, an individual specifically. So let's not for a moment think, oh, well, they had this great grace bestowed upon them. That's why they did these things. 
Remember, they didn't have this teaching yet from Paul. They had not yet fully developed all of this great grace that had been given to them. So it is not fair to say, well, if I had that grace and seen that grace, then I would have acted that way. Church, what we have as truly understanding our identity as Christ is better than any sign and symbol that we could see performed on someone else. This is why Paul tells us over 150 times the primary factor of our relationship with Jesus is understanding that it is about our identity in Christ. He uses that phrase in a variation over 150 times in his 13 letters. We must get that into our souls. And one person who understood the work of what God was doing was the man we see next in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. A guy named Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid any attention to this guy named Barnabas, but he is one of the best examples for us in all of Scripture. Uh, We get a character sketch of Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, and so I'm going to very quickly just list six things for you about Barnabas that, that should cause you to look up Barnabas and even strive to emulate Barnabas in your own life. Number one, he is one of, if not the lead giver of this entire movement that we see taking place in Acts chapter 4. He is the first one to embrace the Apostle Paul after he had been converted. So you just the guy I read out of Ephesians, we're going to find out in a couple of chapters in Acts, he's actually the number one persecutor of the church. He's the one hiring the hit squads and the mob squads to go out and to persecute and to kill the Christians. So when he first tells of his conversion, you can naturally assume that the church is very nervous about this guy named Paul coming into their ranks. The very first person to embrace him and to bring him in is Barnabas. In Acts chapter 11, we're going to see that he leads the church in diversification because he was the first one who was willing to go out and to pastor the Gentile converts. Though though we just take this for granted, though Jesus said go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth, the Jewish people were not on board with this for the first decade of the church. And when we get to Acts chapter 10 and the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, because we read this in this linear fashion, we think, wow, this takes place really fast. But scholars tell us that was about eight to ten years after the ascension of Jesus And through only miraculous way were the Jews even willing to go to share the gospel with the Gentiles. This was a big deal that Barnabas would be the first one to welcome the Gentiles into the church. Later on in Acts, he's put in charge of taking relief money to Jerusalem when it's hit with a famine. Later on, he goes with Paul on his first missionary journey. And what may be the most remarkable act of Barnabas throughout the entire book of Acts is there was a guy named John Mark who at one point was traveling with Paul, who one point gives up and quits and, and, and goes off for a while. And this really bothered Paul. Well, after acknowledging his sin, confessing his sin, and repenting of his sin, he came back and said, I want to rejoin the group. And Paul said, no way. He said, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. Wait, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. He said, no, I'm not giving you another chance. Barnabas says, we should give him another chance. Paul says, no way, no how. And right there, the first church split takes place. Paul and Barnabas go their own way. Paul was wrong in this. And Barnabas knew he was wrong, but Barnabas was willing to bring this young man back into the fold and to let him continue his work for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It could not have been easy for him to stand up to Paul. So Barnabas is an, is an incredible character for us. But in this story, let me sum it up this way with the way I heard from J.D. Greer one time. He says, Barnabas is a guy who lays money down and picks people up. His hold on stuff was loose, but his hold on others was tight. He's a picture of a gospel-transformed man. In light of the sermon today, he's a picture of a grace-transformed man. And so let me ask you this question. Do you see evidence of this in your life? 
Can you say that since you have become a follower of Jesus, that you have experienced your group, your grip, loosening on the things of this world and embracing others more securely? I hope so. For it is a clear sign that great grace is moving in your soul. It is a clear sign that you have embraced the great grace that God has bestowed upon you in your life. Now, if you can, just for a moment, put yourselves in the shoes of the people who were witnessing the great giving of men like Barnabas. You can probably imagine that people like Barnabas, who were giving in such radical and generous ways, were the talk of the town. And you know what happens when we hear people start talking about how awesome and wonderful other people are, don't we? We want people to start talking about how awesome and wonderful we are. We want people to say nice things about us. Because you're thinking to yourself deep down that I'm better than that person. So of course, so I need to go do something that gets a little more attention so that people will say these nice and wonderful things about me. Because I like having people say nice things about me. And that's exactly what happens to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1-11. Sometimes, where the Bible introduces a chapter break, it's unfortunate. Because it shows us, because we read, we read by chapters, and when we read by chapters, we think the story is to be broken. You need to understand, these two stories are linked together very purposefully. The story of Barnabas and what was taking place in the early church should not be separated from in any way the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They are inextricably linked together. So Acts 5, 1-11 says this, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is a terrifying story. People often ask, why was God so harsh over something seemingly so small in the grand view of big sins committed in the world today? Before I answer that question, let me point out a few key details in this passage. Throughout the book of Acts, we have regularly seen that people are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they do incredible things. They boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. They step out in faith in amazing ways. This is the first instance where we see that someone was filled with Satan, who, was, who had their hearts filled by Satan in this. Another detail to point out in the story is that the amount of money they kept for themselves was not the issue. Let's just say, for example, they sold this piece of property for $100,000. It is not the fact that they did not give all of the $100,000 to the church. It is not the fact that they, ha- they were required to give $70,000, $50,000, $30,000, $10,000. They were not required to give anything at all. The amount of money or the percentage of money is not the issue in the story. The issue is that they lied to God. That is the great sin. They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit which the details would tell us the Holy Spirit is God. So therefore, if you encounter someone who tells you that the Holy Spirit is not God, okay, then they are a false witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So whether that's Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or any other group out there that would say uh, some things that might sound good. If you do not believe that the Holy Spirit is God, you are a false witness and a false teacher. You have a false understanding of who He is. The Holy Spirit is God. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The last detail I will point out, which was going to seem like the most random part of this entire message, is the reaction of Sapphira herself. Okay? Ladies, this is a free one just for you. I know in Acts, or Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay? I do not have time to explain that or go into the context of any of that at this moment. But what I will say is, having been a pastor for many years, having been married for many years, Um, And understanding this dynamic, ladies, you are never supposed to follow your husband into sin. All right? You never check your hat at the door and go, well, my husband's, I can see that my husband is intentionally leading us into sin. Now, he might be leading you into a mistake, okay? But a mistake might be a sin, but a mistake is not necessarily a sin, okay? But if you ever find yourself in the place where you know that your husband is intentionally leading you into sin, say no. Put your foot down. If he decides to be a dum-dum and go along with it, you let him be a dum-dum and, suffer and, and reap what he sows, okay? But you don't follow him into his sin. For you will one day give an account of your own life. Don't get caught up in his unless he is following Jesus. All right? So that's just a little aside. That's why Sapphira gets punished alongside of her husband is because she was accountable to herself and she followed her husband into this sin, and therefore it ended her life as well. So, back to the question. Well, why did God punish this, these two people in, in, in a lie when we know there are much greater sins in the world committed then and now? Why did God punish these two people this way? And though this will not be a full answer, looking at every aspect of the issue, let me point out one thing that we see more than once in Scripture. Wherever God is intensely present, sin is intensely judged. Wherever God is intensely present, sin is intensely judged. Leviticus chapter 10. God has just given the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Just given the instructions of how to perform the ceremonies of worship and sacrifice. And the sons of Aaron, in their very first attempt, get it wrong and God strikes them dead. 
God was intensely present. Sin was intensely judged. Uzzah. In 2 Samuel 6-7, one of the men with King David, a group is taking the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It's being pulled by oxen. It's on a cart. The oxen stumble. And with the best of intentions in his heart, Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the Ark so it doesn't fall over. And immediately touching the Ark, he falls down dead. David becomes furious with God. But yet it was strictly forbidden for anyone to touch the ark. That's why they carried it on poles. That's why there were rings to put poles through to carry it, because no one was allowed to touch the ark, because the presence of God resided between the cherubim on the ark. Where God is intensely present, sin is intensely judged. We see more than one example of this in Scripture, Old Testament and New. Now that we've pulled out the key details, now that I've kind of given you all of the head information and the head knowledge of this passage, now we need to make a turn, and now we need to begin to apply it to our hearts. Because now we have to ask ourselves, well, what, what does this passage mean for us? What, is, what does God have for you and I from this passage that we need to, to, to deal with in here, in this moment, before we leave? And then once, we've leave, once we leave. We've looked at what happened in the story. We know why they were struck dead. They lied to God. That was their sin. But yet, but we have not yet examined why it is they chose to lie to God. Now, though we don't have a full psychological workup on Ananias and Sapphira, we can, we can pretty much surmise two things. That the cause of their sin was the love of money and the praise of others. The actual sin was lying to God, but the cause of their sin was a love of money and praise of others. Now let me point out something to you, if no one's ever introduced these categories to you, but all of the sin in our life basically, basically comes from four roots in our lives. The sin that you and I commit comes from these four roots. Power, praise, pleasure, and control. All the sin committed in the world by human beings... You can find these roots singularly or intertwined together of power, praise, pleasure, and control. When you are examining the sin in your life, you need to look in these categories to, because each of us will be more drawn and more tempted by one of these four roots uh, differently than others. But yet we need to realize these are the root cause of our sin. And so they had a love of money, and they had a love of the praise of others. But as we've talked about all this, now you've got to turn this story on yourself. Because the easy thing to do is to go, Whew, I'm glad I wasn't living back then. I'm glad I am not Ananias and Sapphira. That's one thing we normally do. The other thing we normally do is go, yep, I know people just like that, <laughs> right? Man, I can think of at least three people who need to hear this sermon today. Bring them with you next week, but right now this is for you. If you spent some time in this story and you were honest with yourself, would you say you're more like Barnabas? Or would you say you're more like Ananias and Sapphira? And you're going, well, I've never given up all of my stuff, so I'm not like either one. So let me frame it for you in this context. Are you more like Barnabas and fully surrendered to God? Or are you more like Ananias and Sapphira and you're lying about something and covering it up? 
Is there something in your life that you're covering up and you don't want anybody to know? Is there a false face and a false impression you're giving to the world around you, to the church around you, that you don't want anybody to know about? I know that I am about to step on some toes. But please know that what I'm about to say is done with love for you as your pastor. And because I want you to experience and be empowered by great grace and not come under the judgment of God by choosing to intentionally sin and intentionally cover it up. But what I'm about to say is going to hurt. And the Bible says that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. There was a famous missionary named Jim Elliott, who many of you have probably heard of. He has a famous wife named Elizabeth Elliott. There have been many books written about their lives, movies made about their lives, which we would all do well to learn from. But Jim Elliott, before he died, said something that I came across this week, which is one of the most striking things I think I've ever heard a man say. And he said, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Now let's think about that third song we sang this morning. I surrender all. Were you singing lies? Is there something in your life that you are covering up, that you are hiding, that you are trying to keep back from men, that you are trying to keep back from God? In case you're wondering what some of those things might be, let me give you a few examples. Maybe you went out and you got hammered this weekend and you were hoping to come and cover it up with communion this morning. You know the Bible says that getting drunk is a sin. But yet you continue this pattern into your life and you hope that just by coming to church on Sundays you can cover up for it. You can make up for it. What about spending time sitting around binge-watching shows all week, but yet you cover it up by sitting in church on Sunday? Daniel, are you saying it's a sin to binge-watch shows? Maybe. I meet with a group of men every week, and we, we've been going through the Proverbs for about half a year. The Bible says a lot about the sluggard. It says a lot about being lazy and just escaping from the world and not doing the work that God has called us to do. I'm not saying you can't every once in a while sit down and watch a Lord of the Rings marathon, all right? You go right ahead, or a Star Wars marathon, or whatever tickles your fancy. But if you are using it as an escape from the world, if you are being lazy and not doing what God has called you to do, because God has called all believers to produce more than they consume in this life. Though God's grace is great and it is free and it is given to us, and though we don't work for approval but, but from approval, though we don't have to work for God, we get to work for God, there is an expectation that we would live our lives for the sake and for the glory of God at all times. And if you need to take a break and watch TV to do that every once in a while, you can totally do that. But if you're escaping from the world and from the work God has called you to do for the glory of his name and for his kingdom, you could be covering that up in your dorm room, in your apartment, your house, wherever you live. Now, we could specifically talk about the content of what we watch. Let's just be honest. Who in here has looked at porn this week but was hoping that looking at your Bible on Sunday morning was just going to cover over that sin? This issue is not just for guys today. 50% of all females in this age demographic that we're here at the University of Florida watch porn on a regular basis. This is just the world we live in. It's so easy to go and to gravitate to that screen. But if you just think by covering it up, by, by coming to church on a Sunday, 
that this is just going to be atoned for and not make an absolute wreck of your life. You are dead wrong. Guys, I will just tell you, if you want to kill the sparkle in your wife's eye, go look at porn. Bring it into your marriage and you will suck the life out of her soul. I have sat with men for decades. I have sat with wives for decades and I have watched the life sucked out of their soul because of their husband continuing to look at porn. This is ravaging our society. If you are just hoping that it will, one day I'll get married and it'll all go away. No, it won't. It will not just go away. And if you are covering that up, you need to confess that sin. Maybe you speak harshly to your wife and to your kids during the week. Maybe you're really prone to tell dirty jokes and use foul speech all week long, but you hope that coming into church and singing Amazing Grace on Sunday is just going to make up for it all. Because you can put on this false front for people here who don't really know you, and you can make it look good. You can tell, you can go home and you can call your parents, yeah, I went to church today, and your parents think, oh, that's great, they're going to church every Sunday, but you know what you're doing in the privacy of your own space. Listen, the great sin of Ananias and Sapphira was that rather than confessing their sin, they lied and covered it up. Let me just say this to you. If you're afraid about your sin coming out, let me just go ahead and make this easy for you. It is going to come out. One way or another, the sin that you are trying to hide, that you are trying to keep pushed down. Trying to hide sin is like holding a bobcat in a bucket. Now just imagine the lunacy of taking a 35-pound bobcat, putting it in one of those five-gallon Home Depot buckets, and just trying to hold it down with your hand so it doesn't get out. Eventually, it is going to tear you up, and it is going to get out for the entire world to see. So God, in His incredible grace and mercy, says, listen, confess this stuff. Tell the body of Christ, be vulnerable. It's why we're commended in James. Confess your sins one to another. Because there you will find freedom. There you will find forgiveness. There you will be met with mercy and grace. But listen to me, if you continue to sin, you will continue to drink judgment down upon your head. And it's one thing to drink judgment upon your head in your life through your intentional sin over and over for yourself. But one day, you will take those sins into a family. And if you think for one moment it will not affect your wife and your children and your children's children throughout the generations, you are a fool. Our sin never affects only us. Our sin affects everyone and everything around us. Because let's just go back to the binge-watching thing just for a moment. So often when we sin against God and we're covering things up, that's when we go hide in the dark. And Netflix and Prime Video and Hulu and YouTube make it really easy to hide in the dark. And when people say, hey, what's going on? Where were you? Oh, I was just busy. I'm so stressed out. But in reality, if you were to really examine it, it might be because you are covering up some sin in your life that is bringing you down. That you are drinking judgment upon yourself in this life because you are not filled with the Spirit as God has called you to be filled with the Spirit. And so the question is, are you ready to confess your sin and find forgiveness? Or will you continue to bring judgment on yourself? Now, you might be saying, but I'm not struck down yet. That's true. 
That's true. But one day, that sin will strike you down and it will be laid bare before the people in your life. God does not want that for you. God wants you to think about and to meditate and to realize that great grace that He has bestowed upon you. I mean, I mean again, this, just think about this. In spite of your deepest, darkest sin, God fully knows that sin and He fully loves you. Now think about that. When we talk about Christianity, when we talk about the love of Jesus, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about some namby-pamby, you know, ethereal, sentimental, feeling type of love. We are talking about this fierce, unrelenting love that you, right now, if you are covering up the deepest, darkest sin in the whole world, God fully knows every aspect of it, and it has not changed His thoughts and feelings about you, His opinion about you, has not changed your status of being in Christ one iota. That is who this God is that we serve. When we say that God is love, that's what we mean. That this God still fully loves you and is still fully pursuing every inch of your heart. See, there, there, there's two sides to our sin. God's great grace, which is so patient in allowing us time to confess and repent, still allows the consequences of sin to permeate our lives and affect not only us, but those around us. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-4, through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see that God wants you to walk in freedom? God wants you to walk in joy. But that happens when we acknowledge our sin, when we confess our sin, and we repent of our sin and go the other way. The great grace that saved you in Ephesians 2, but God, should move in your heart like it did Barnabas's, and cause you to fully surrender. Do not let Satan fool your heart. Do not let Satan fill your heart into believing that this grace was given so that you could continue in sin. Come to Jesus today. Obey the commandment in scriptures that tell us to confess our sins to one another. For here you will find great grace.